0: Hello and welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. Couple guys who talk about TV and know a little something about theology, working our way through the excellent series Rectify episode by episode. And uh, Ryan, we're we're getting a little deeper into season two now with episode two zero two. And our listeners should stay tuned because for now, for the second. Podcast episode in a row, we have a special guest. What's happening, us. Tony?
1: What is what is happening? <laughs> hey, you know we're also recording this in the afternoon, so I have a small glass of bourbon by my well, side. Normally, the you and I are recording in the morning. There,
0: it's the evening here in uh, Minneapolis. I- I'm drinking a vodka drink with a um, a rhubarb mint syrup that I made yesterday with. Elements from my garden. I've got a lot of rhubarb and a lot of mint right now. You're,
1: that is a that is a quarantine cocktail if I've ever heard of
0: one. It is quarantine-ish.
1: Hey, listen, 202, Daniel's still in a coma. I'm getting a little worried about the guy. I'm kidding because we know what happens at the end of the episode. But again, and, uh, although not as much as episode 201, still using that coma to do some flashbacks or some dream sequences. Yeah. As you said, but Tony, I think for the purposes of this conversation, before we have our guest, the star of this episode for me in so many ways is the sheriff.
0: Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. I love that he's not going to give up. I love the way it's written that he's got this like deputy who's always, you know, there, there is this thing it's, um, it's an old trope of like, you know, you've got the devil on one shoulder or the demon on the one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, that kind of thing. And we've already talked about that with Daniel when he's in solitary in season one. And he's got, you know, he's got this angel on the one side of him who believes he's innocent. And then he's got this really a demon, which I want to get into with our, our guest later. I've got, I've got a very kind of specific question for him about, about that dude. But it's, it's the same here with the sheriff who's got this kind of inner moral compass that he wants to do the right thing, even though it's going to cost him. But he's always got this deputy. Well, and I guess he's got the state senator, too. who now we know is going to be running for governor.
1: Exactly. they are
0: both <clears throat> kind of telling him to look the other way. And, you know, he's never going to win re-election as sheriff if he pursues, you know, the person who... Who assaulted Daniel? And I agree, it was super fun to watch him. Um, all of
1: the all of the logic, you know, if we could say this, it's on the deputy's side, right? Like, just let it lay. You know, yeah, the real everything that you've articulated, the re-election, um, they know who did it, but really, there's this. It's a, you know, when that, in that early episode, was it first or second episode of the first season when Carl, the sheriff, follows Amantha home at night? The, and the move from him to that, that version of Carl or Carl then versus Carl now, it feels different. And he is pursuing justice no matter the cost. And it, it puts himself immediately in danger of retaliation from these guys who beat Daniel and obviously it puts his job at risk.
0: It it's fun to watch him do that. So I mean, we've got these two uh I guess you'd say more minor characters who have big kind of awakenings in this episode, right? Because you've got the sheriff who decides that he's really going to pursue Uh, you know, the the, whoever assaulted Daniel. And then you've also got even earlier in the episode, you've got John Stern in Oklahoma in another state where he has lost a death penalty case, a death penalty appeal. And we find out that he's been hoodwinked, that he's been lied to, that there is DNA evidence in that case that does match with his client. And he's, you know, he's doesn't do well with this information that he's been hoodwinked. Um, and with this, this is where we get this reference. We get a couple different references, which are interesting. One, we get a reference to uh, the, the sleeping giants, which, he, you know, he refers to DNA evidence as a sleeping giant. And and his attorney, John Stern, says to this guy, Hollis, on death row, um You know, that's the thing about Sleeping Giants is they always wake up.
1: Tony, that felt like to me foreshadowing for Daniel's case. And it felt like John Stern's reaction to Hollis the whole time is that he's kind of banking some sort of insight that he's going to draw from later. Like that it's kind of scratching an itch and he's not quite sure, but there may be some connection to the case that he is. Still working for the uh, for the Holden family, um, and we don't we don't really go anywhere by the end of this episode. With that, we are kind of left lingering. You know, John's still in Oklahoma t- and telling Amanda that he's ready to come home, which is hinting at something, you know, and, and say, something developing something developing further. Say, I
0: love you, one another, which seems they like do. Fun it seems that me.
1: that seems new yeah. as well, right? Speaking of couples, another strong sequence between Teddy Junior and Tawny which Teddy's still wrestling with his dad over how to best conduct the family business. And it's putting a lot of stress on him. He's still wrestling with these thoughts about Daniel's innocence or guilt and obviously the trauma of Daniel's attack. And then he's got to deal with this bomb that Tawny drops that she's got feelings for Daniel or had feelings for Daniel. She's trying to come clean. And I thought it was such a well-written scene that you know, Tawny is apologizing and asking for forgiveness, and Tony, I don't know that she really has anything to ask forgiveness for. It felt so confining, like a very southern marriage, right? A very male-dominated yeah. relationship. Oh and and the, and Teddy, I'll say one last thing about it because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Teddy can only conceive of Daniel and Tawny's friendship in sexual or romantic ways.
0: Yeah, that's right, and and I, you you kind of think that Tawny's gonna let herself off the hook by saying, "No, I didn't have feelings for him. I wanted him to be saved." I mean, she could have sold that, but it, easily, right? And and we would have believed it as viewers, and, and Teddy, her husband, would have believed it. But she, this shows what a kind of deeply faithful, honest again we've we've tried to avoid saying that Tawny is naive because she doesn't seem naive but she might be a little naive to think that she can admit to her husband that she has romantic feelings for her brother-in-law who is a convicted murderer <laughs> and that teddy's just going to be like yeah, no, but cool. you yeah you don't have those feelings anymore okay that's cool no of course teddy's i mean gonna freak out about that um and then she kind of like throws it's all in this context of do you still believe in god do you still pray why don't you pray with me anymore i mean this is a marriage like we're watching a marriage dissolve before our eyes but i just thought it was so interesting to write it that way that she could have gotten away with a fib with a white lie did i have feelings for him yes my feelings were i wanted him to be saved by the lord but not, I had feelings for him, and then he asked me to kiss him, and then I broke it off. I mean, that's that's to a different level, and you can see why Teddy would be freaked out about that.
1: I was talk, I was thinking about it last night while I was watching this episode, and there's the, the two scenes take place between Teddy Junior and Tawny take place at the tire shop and then at home, and in the scene at the tire shop, I was just thinking. Tawny is the wor- absolute worst last person you want to get into an argument with because even if you win the argument, you still lose. Right? She's such a sweetheart. You feel like a jackass for <laughs> shaming. You should feel like a jackass for shaming this woman. Yeah. But her calm presence in the face of his anger, I think, is so beautiful. She doesn't escalate. You know, he says something to her, and you said, you know, you've already pointed out, she says, do you still pray? It's just this such disarming response. It's I mean, totally what's
0: interesting is that he so clearly lies when he's like, "Of course, you know." Yeah. It's that it's that white lie that you say to your spouse, "Of course, I still pray." And you're like, "Dude, yeah. you don't pray." Like, come clean. That you know, but he he says the white lie in order to appease her or whatever, get her off his back. But then, when the tables are turned, she does not white lie and she tells the truth, which is just—you think like th- Can this marriage handle another wedge being driven? And the- oh, yeah, and there's the other wedge.
1: Yeah, and not to be too—I uh, don't know—too trite about it, but both Teddy Junior and Tawny have been impacted by Daniel in, albeit in different ways. Tawny confesses to that experience. And Teddy's still burying that, burying his right. He's still not confessing to her, yeah, what happened with between he and Daniel. I mean, and in part of that, he doesn't know, right? He, uh, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's probably pretty clear that Teddy would have known if Daniel raped him, but he did assault him. You know, it's still an experience and an emotional experience uh, that he that he hasn't cop to.
0: Yeah, I mean, that—that that is interesting, Ryan, that, you know, I, I will admit that he, that episode has had kind of even slipped my mind. So there's a whole nother reason for Teddy to despise Daniel, he, whether he, he raped him, which I don't think he did. I think he no. put his pants down and poured coffee on his butt, you know, but, just,
1: just to humiliate him. Right. To
0: humiliate him. But all the more reason for him to be absolutely steamed. That his, um, you know, his wife would have feelings for this guy. It, it's.
1: Yeah. Tony, I want to bring up one other theme that I don't believe we've touched on yet. And this may be something that we we don't have enough time for. It, I mean, this could obviously take episodes and episodes, but I was mindful of the concept of memory last night and especially the work of Miroslav Volf around how we remember because I think about Hannah's brother who is just in a drunken stupor, how her mother walks around the house and has almost these shrines to her with all of these dolls and everything. And, you know, there's such a there's there's this individual memory and then there's this collective memory, the way the town is remembering. I think that life group that Tawny goes to in this episode, where the woman is reflecting on the feelings that she harbored for Daniel, rightly or wrongly. But, there, you know, I think it's Volf and maybe some other writers who talk about um, the ethic of memory, like how we remember things. And I, I just feel like this series is is kind of slowly sliding into that theme of mm-hmm. do we remember uh, to forgive and to protect others or do we remember to har- to harbor grudges and do violence and harm to other people? And the, and the scene in this episode that made me think about it was – when when Hannah's brother is outside the bar, drunk, um, yeah. and and slowly, kind of not, yeah, I guess slowly falling apart. But anyway, that just came to mind. I don't know if that's something that you had thought about or you feel like worth exploring throughout this series.
0: Well, it is, and and it's something I want to uh, talk to our guest about as he joins us here um, in just a minute, because I I wonder how Daniel copes without having his best friend. I mean, we're, we're watching him now in the flashback scenes that are kind of running it parallel with the, you know, real-time scenes. He's coming apart. You know, he's coming unglued. He's tearing apart his cell. He's destroying his books. They have to haul him out. Um, it's such, such a difficult they, thing they, to watch. They slide, a, they slide a pamphlet on prisoner mental health under his door. <laughs>
1: yeah basically and he's just thing to the line you know
0: i do wonder how kerwin's the memory of kerwin will that keep him help keep him sane on the row or will it you know drive him even more mad
1: and he and kerwin's the first person that he calls to when he comes out of his coma
0: yeah that's right
1: and we talked about and one last thing about that as well is we we questioned last week uh janet slowly showing strength and i think she i think she does in this episode as she stands watch over daniel and then as the two connect i I thought that was a beautiful connection between them and a a great use of humor and a a very emotional scene when he wakes up and then pretends to go to sleep again and
0: well it did i really did finally
1: shows some emotion right she finally
0: really huge it's he's it's like he comes out of you might say he was resurrected out of this coma and he comes out with yeah with a, like a sense of humor which of course it's a, a sense of humor is a is a humanizing trait so to have him come out of a coma and kind of joke with his mom you do all of a sudden as a viewer i suddenly felt some real you know connection human connection with daniel which i have not always felt
1: well we're happy to be joined by the author and uh, the screenwriter of this episode, Scott Team. Scott, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. this is this is fun. Uh, I'm really uh, excited to talk about the show. It's um, you know it's it remains one of the things I'm I'm uh, most proud of. You know, when I look back on the work I've done, this, this show is is a very very special place in my heart. So I'm happy to talk. How do I sound? sound Well, it's yeah, you sound
1: great, Scott. And (laughs) and I'll tell you, for us, it's just a real pleasure to have you here because it's quickly becoming one of Tony and and my favorite shows. And just to kind of let you know, we are going through the show episode by episode and are doing our best to do one episode a week. And Tony and I have not gotten ahead of of episode 202 so that's crazy there's so that's, much okay, that you know
2: i'm gonna try to like um that yeah, yeah, don't you, keep road. Road. <laughs> yeah
1: but we're but if that if that happens that's fine but we're yeah, we yeah, yeah. to to introduce you to some of our listeners you know uh scott has a long career in this industry uh as a writer director of films like that evening sun and the recently released the quarry uh, and has written for series like Rectify and Narcos and and really have a, has a lot of cool stuff coming up that that I'm sure we can talk about later. But Scott, I wanted to know uh you're singing the praises of this show f- Out of the Gate. I'm wondering if you can yeah. tell us a bit about your involvement with it, how it came to you or you came to it and and and, and yeah. then we could go from there.
2: Yeah, well, uh Ray McKinnon, I met Ray ray was in my film that evening son as an actor he also produced it so ray ray's a guy that i as a young filmmaker i come from georgia you know you look for those who are telling the kind of stories you want to tell who are doing it with authenticity you know doing it really well and ray and walt goggins his partner at the time filmmaking partner were telling these stories that I just felt um, were so genuine and authentic to my experience and and to the worlds that I knew and the Southern experience. Um, And we all three, Ray, Walt, and I all come from Georgia. So that was a shared point of connection. They had made a couple of films, three films at that point. They made The Accountant, their short film that won the Oscar. They'd made two features, one called Crystal, which I just a door and one called Raining the mob, which is very good. And, and I had sought them out for that movie and to, to sort of be a shepherd uh, shepherds for me to sort of help me tell this story. I love them as actors. I love them as filmmakers. And so um, that was really a, a coup for me to, to get them, to be a part of that movie. Ray was really the first guy I mean, the story of how we met Ray is actually quite amazing, which is a total L.A. story. Terrence Berry, who produced that Evening Sun, Yeah, no Terrence. You yeah, Terrence. So Terrence. And so Ray and Walt were on this list of like, these are the people we want to work with. These are the guys. And there was a list of 10, you know, whatever, 10 people or production companies or producers or entities that we thought we could make this story with. And at the top of the list was Ray and Walt. But we had no way to reach them. I know I didn't have any representation at the time. You know we were I was new. This is 15 years ago, and new to town. Didn't know. Didn't. No one took my calls. All that stuff. And uh, and Terrence one day is in Paquito Mas in Burbank, getting a taco or whatever, and <laughs> he he hears this nasally voice behind him and. He turns around and sure enough, it's Ray McKinnon sitting there. And in the most classic fashion. And to this day, I, I think Terrence eternally for what he did, which is to walk over to Ray, the thing you don't do. Right. You walk, he walks over to Ray and says, Hey, uh, I got a screenplay. And it's like the, the most classic, you don't do this Amazing. kind of thing. And
0: it ha- uh, hey, man, it happens
2: in the movies all the time.
0: <laughs> right,
2: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 to raise no, I think he buttered him up a little bit. He said, hey, man, I really love your films that you've directed, which most people know Ray is an actor. And so I think he was a little bit like, oh, okay, this guy knows my work. And Terrence said, I, I have this thing. I think you might like it. May I send it to you? And Ray, to his great credit, said yes. And so we gave him the script. A couple months later, he's like, I like this. Let's talk. And uh, and that was the beginning of this relationship. So Ray, um, and he was the first guy of really of any of any import, of any, you know, of any any one that could get something and had done something had, was a real working uh, filmmaker and actor who had believed in us. And and so it was a real beautiful gift. So he sort of helped me get that film made and was a huge part of my film career beginning and so when he called me then three years later or whatever to come work on the show after graham and michael had to leave ray called me and said because i watched the first season of as a just as a friend i had read the pilot back when he wrote it and uh couldn't get it made at amc and all that drama and then i watched the first season just as a friend and a fan and i i was blown away i couldn't believe yeah. it and uh and and I wrote him this long email and just said, Hey man, I just love this so much. And uh, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And, and you should really just, just be proud too. And he called me and he said, you want to come work on it? And I was like, yes. So uh, I jumped at the chance to, to work on the show. It just felt so deeply. It was so deeply felt. And that was obvious from the get go and his whole heart, his whole, his whole being, um, was being poured into this thing i could see that from the beginning and and the moment i knew i would love this show was the episode when in season one the reason i remember watching i watched it in pretty fairly short order after it was done i think and then i was getting through the first couple of episodes were great of course but the, when i was like this is different this is special oddly enough was the moment uh, when Teddy's at the at the hotel and doesn't go back with the girls in tell the me. room, and I was yeah. like, okay, you know what? Um, this is not going to take the usual turns these shows take, these stories take. He he wants to create real human beings here. He wants to tell stories of complex people, and I'm all in, you know. And then so to come be able to write on the show and, and direct the show a little bit too, um, was just a, a real gift.
1: Scott, that's something we talked about, uh, at length and, in one of the episodes, um, lat, well, one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, that's something that really resonated with us is that yeah. you feel like when you watch it, you're like, well, here we go. We know what, we know what Teddy's doing. Right. And <laughs> yeah. I remember I told Tony that I had watched it with my wife and, Uh, as soon as that scene ended, she looked at me and she said, well, that's, I I look at him different. Yeah. And I just thought that's a, that's a sign of some, some great storytelling.
2: And I think you'll find, I mean, I think as you go and you're on two Oh two. So Teddy is still, uh, he's still the Teddy that he was at the beginning, but he's had this trauma inflicted upon him. And, and that's, and he's going to have to deal with that. Right. And so I'm, I'm, I think the journey that you will see Teddy take on in this series it, to me is extraordinary. And I love, uh, I love what we did with that character. And, I, and that's one of my, my proudest things just and Clayne Crawford's a huge part of that. Uh, yeah. And, um, uh, but I, I, just love that guy. Teddy was the guy I latched on to because I, I know Teddy Teddy's me in some ways, you know, he's the guy, um, Daniel is um, so utterly unique and special. Um, but Daniel's a space alien. You know, he's sort of like he's like he's just dropped into the yeah. world and he can do anything. And that was the that was the real joy of writing Daniel. It was like he can do anything and say anything. And it makes sense in his world. And Aiden Young is so extraordinary. And he just is able to make whatever you write make sense in his own way. But Teddy's like the guy who he's in some ways harder, more difficult in a way to write because he's the, he's got to be more, more grounded, more real. And so it was, they're all challenging. They're all complex, which, which is, which is why the show's great. I mean, um, yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I was such a huge fan of that evening sun and it had such an impact on me. Thanks. Uh, and I think I would seen it not long after I moved to LA, and has been an inspiration for me and some of the other stuff that I'm working on. But and then when I saw that you were involved in Rectify, and knowing what I knew about the show, I, I said, "Well, that just makes all the sense in the world."
2: Yeah. Can you, Thanks,
1: can you talk a bit about your your desire to to tell stories like this? Um, I've heard you speak a little bit. You know, when you were uh, talking about the quarry, but. Mm-hmm. There's an authenticity to your work that I think uh, is mirrored in Rectify and vice versa, yeah. and and really understanding a sense of place. And you talked about the complexity of Teddy Jr. already, but I just wonder if you could talk about your approach to storytelling, especially when it involves people and places that are often mm-hmm. mistreated from a narrative mm-hmm. perspective.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm certainly most interested in. Um, the, the gray area of, 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 of man. I'm going to say men, you know, of men and women of human beings. Um, I'm interested in how we each, um, have those sides of us, the, the, the light and the dark. And, um, there, there, you know, there's no good guys and bad guys in this world and, and, um, we're all just people. And, when a story wants to embrace those kind of complexities uh, I'm I, that's what I'm interested in. And, in, and, as a storyteller as well, and just because that's, I, I, mean, I love a great hook. I love a great premise. I love a great setup in a story, but then what, what a great setup does that evening sun's a perfect example. So what it is is old man's in a nursing home, decides he doesn't want to live there anymore, walks out, catches a ride back to his farm, gets to his farm, discovers someone's living there and that he doesn't want to be living there. And so he moves into a shack on the property and says, I'm not, living, I'm not leaving until I get my farm back. So that sets up then this great conflict. Okay, you have these, this battle of wills, these two minute war, and you know you're headed towards something, which is a, a confrontation of some kind down the road. But inside of that space and that tension created by a great sort of setup, you have these the space for characters to to make good decisions and bad decisions, to do the right thing, to do the wrong thing, to wrestle with their nature, and I love those kind of stories. and And the quarry is the same thing: a guy trying to outrun his, his sins of his past and wrestle with the guilt, the weight and burden of guilt, and um, and rectify. What TV does is just gives you those those kinds of conflicts, but in tiny little doses. I mean, in in some ways we often talked about Rectify as being sort of like Daniel getting out of prison was this like earthquake at the beginning of the series. There's an earthquake. And the first season is dealing with like, literally the earthquake is like shaking and it's like the immediate aftermath of this earthquake. And then as each season goes by, the ripple effects kind of go out, out, you know, and it's sort of or it's like a, a pebble dropped in a pond and knowing like the, the way it ripples out. And mm-hmm. we always tried to like gauge throughout the whole season, like when the whole series went, when is when are the ripples going to die out? And that's when we want to stop. You know, there's this thing that happens that uh, that, that, that that changes and affects everyone. In the in the vicinity of this person, you know, and everyone's lives are deeply, deeply affected by Daniel's release. And, and so we just tried to like take these moments of conflict that all the with each character that he interacted with, and and you know f- find those little moments, find that tension, but find the those those places where people have to make choices, and they make good choices and bad choices, and back and forth and back and forth, and they all do it. And that's, what's great is when you can have a smaller cast of characters, you can service those characters with stories of their own and give them opportunities to make choices. And in their choices, they reflect, they they reveal their true character and the complexity of their character. And um, as long as you're not serving a great deal of plot, uh, which the beauty of this show is that it doesn't in 202, we can talk about it, which is the first, the first (laughs) time, first time we have to start serving plot and that was a big deal i mean like in the more traditional way it's the first episode in which um, the story jumps forward in time more than a day and and that was um a real big deal you know i mean basically we talked about like 201 is basically 107 right that's basically the end of that story and then there's that incredible i just watched it again this morning i hadn't watched this stuff in in a little while I watched it this morning. Knowing we were going to talk, I watched the end of 201, and that the scene with Kerwin in the field is one of the greatest things I've ever been involved in. It's just unbelievable. It's remarkable. Um, it's I cried watching it today. I cry every time I watch it. And, uh, and then I watched. I just kind of scanned through 202 to remind myself of what it was about. And um, <laughs> I realized I was like, oh right. So that is, and now we have to start. Like that was a big thing we wrestled with during that. During the writer's room of season two was like, we have to actually move this story forward now in in, in a more traditional way. Um, we can't just we can't have season two be another 10 days. You know, we have to like actually start getting into people's lives and and how the, the 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 ongoing effects of all this stuff with Daniel and and that took us a minute to figure out how to do that, you know.
1: So we can see a conscious shift. Uh, in in terms of structure between season one and two, where season one was a day an episode,
2: mm-hmm.
1: season two you're you're telling us we can expect some some yeah larger we jump time forward movement, yeah time, I guess and that's yeah.
2: something that's interesting like looking back on it today the structure interestingly enough in the script the structure of the of the show was John going to visit the guy on death row was the beginning of the that was the cold open of the episode on the page that I wrote. And as um because we wanted to we wanted to clearly st- tell the audience that like we're moving forward. So we're suddenly John's in Oklahoma and he's with this guy and you're like, wait a second. So he must this must be a few days later, but at least at the minimum, because John was just there, you know, a minute ago and whatever. So we we but then that's the interesting thing about the edit Tutorial process is that through the edit, as we got in there and worked on the show, we realized that the order needed to change. And there are various reasons for that. I mean, some of them are the, the Daniel imprisoned storyline got changed a bit in the edit. There was another scene that we got cut. And so it ended up making more sense to put that the, the, the you know, the Daniel scene and, and the flashback the opening of the show to kind of blast him into that, you know, into him. Um, you know, it's just sort of, there was it's editorial puzzle pieces we had to put t- together, but we, we did try to initially um, write that John scene and that, sh- that scene ended up getting cut down quite significantly. The, the challenge we always had, we, 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 we always wrote scenes that wrote episodes that were too long. I did especially. And like, we were always right. We just tried hard and, Ray would say, you know, there's that old Mark Twain quote. Uh, he wrote a letter to someone, uh, you know, they, they say that it was his letter opened. I apologize, you know, for the long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. Meaning like, you know, it was like, you didn't have time to edit and bring it down to the bare bones. And we would write these long scripts. But we were always rushed in the writer's room. So we didn't get time to refine them down. And so we end up shooting... That's a challenge in TV all the time. Uh, Ray would talk about the difference between something that's simplified or something that's simplistic. That's two different things you know a first if you want to write if you want to shoot a 45 page draft which is always our goal and we'd write 55 you got to write a 55 page draft that's really a 45 page draft at the end once you've refined it down. But if you want to write a forty-five page draft out of the gate, that's going to be a simplistic version of that episode. You got to write the 55- or sixty page version, and then whittle it down and refine it to the thing that's that's smaller. And we never had the time to do that, really, and because uh, that's the nature of television you know, on a small show that, you know, time was never on our side, and and um, that was challenging.
0: Hey, um, Scott, I want to add you about that when it comes to writing there there's two particular scenes in this episode 202 yeah i'd like to ask you about and the the writing of it and then maybe even reflect on the acting of it but you know ryan and i've had this this back and forth um i just don't like amantha and i cannot see her every time she's on screen i'm like she's gonna do something that i hate right now (laughs) and she you know, she has this moment in the hallway with the doctor mm-hmm. when the doctor says, you know, we're going to we're going to bring him out of a coma. And she can't even take that good news. Like, right. Janet has to mother her right there. Yeah. But here's what I was so interesting. Um, knowing some doctors like my brother's a surgeon and that doctor played that so cool. Right. I, I did think of that to myself, like, what would it be like to write a character like Amantha who. Wants to have a heart of gold and thinks she's doing everything for the right reason, and yet she's so freaking annoying. <laughs> uh,
2: Tony, tell well, us how you really feel. <laughs> uh, no, well, okay, so there is look, uh, there's um, uh, no doubt that she was a divisive character for some folks, but I always admired her strength and her desire you know her her love and her the way she fought and the and you really have to take amantha's backstory into consideration when you're t- when you're dealing with amantha because those same traits that may make her seem annoying are also the, the, the doggedness that got daniel out of prison i mean the, the basically in the, in the lore of rectify amantha was the one who did it and janet had sort of checked out and uh because it was too much to take and a man if it w- weren't for amantha um then daniel would still be in prison and so you know what i mean so that's i think and and we and but that's easy to forget when you're watching the day-to-day but that same spirit is what got her what got him out and that same drive which can be really off-putting for some people um you know and i think that was um but i I feel like she's but i do feel like she was authentically herself and i feel like um and she has some really really just i would say hang on hang in there with amanda she has some really lovely growth especially in season three and uh and and that's the thing about the show is that at any every point all the main characters have these opportunities for growth throughout the series daniel teddy amantha tawny janet the first season
0: janet was a bit of a cipher like she would. She yeah. had no energy in a scene. She'd be in a room, and it was almost like she wasn't in the room. And then she starts to that that um, late, you know, in what maybe in one oh six when she asked Daniel to help her remodel the kitchen. You you see a, like a little bit of a spark of life mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So that's is to think about that with Amantha because it's almost like Janet was in a walking coma
2: at first yep. and totally. that's what yeah and then and it also helps it also helps me like when you watch janet too um looking at her choices through the lens of like you're watching you're also watching J. smith cameron who is one of the great actors in my opinion of working today and so there's a reason behind every choice you know and and i think you'll begin to see janet because she was she had checked out it was too hard for her you know and you look back on her backstory it's like her son goes to prison. Her husband dies. Um, her world falls apart. She finds this, this life raft in Ted Talbot, and she marries him and, adop- and, and inherits his family. And she's got this daughter who is fighting, but she has no, she lost her son, and, and she died inside, and she couldn't even have the, anyways, it's it's complex, but it's like, I, I think that they all are bringing that. We have these wonderful actors who, I think are all doing what we asked them to do. And ultimately, if there's, if there are character flaws, that's on us, but they are all doing really amazing um, work uh, and embodying the people that we wanted them to be and that Ray envisioned them to be, you know, it's beautiful.
0: I think you want me to not like Amanda at right. this point. Sure. She's, she snaps at a doctor or. A like she's also the
2: person days. that, she's also the person that often is usually someone's, Favorite character or least favorite character? You know, one of those divisive people that people that um, you know that, that identify with her. She's their favorite character, and yeah. And you think you know what does
0: John? What does John Stern see in her
2: mm-hmm. too? You
0: know? like, right, but she, she's very sweet to him. She's very sweet to John Stern. So yeah, yeah. Hey, there's another. Th- I I want to ask you about another thing that I find so fascinating, and it's it's in these flashback death row right. scenes. Um, mm-hmm. Just on our last episode, we had Johnny Ray Gill on, and it was fantastic to talk to him.
2: Yeah.
0: And you know, there were times in season one where Daniel had Kerwin on the one side of him and Wendell Jelks on the other side. And it was it was that very classic, you know, angel on the one shoulder. Angel and the devil. Yeah. And now the angel's gone, and in this yep. scene, man, this is what I want to talk to you about. Theologically, like even biblically speaking, the the word Satan, the Hebrew word Satan, you know, it, it really means the adversary or the tormentor. And this guy, man, Wendell, yep. he he is he is Daniel's tormentor, <laughs> and without out there, yeah, to. See in the gap and tell Wendell to shut up, he's driving Daniel mad. And so I just found that as just theologically or even spiritually compelling, like he was able to convince, you know, he drove Daniel so mad, Daniel destroyed his own books, you know, rubbed his own shit in the room and just, he he drives him uh, to the brink of insanity. And we were joking um, just before, came on about <laughs> the prison's response is to slide a pamphlet on inmate mental health. Right.
2: Yeah, I know. Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear
0: yeah. you a bit about that. Uh, Wendell Delt's character is like... It, did you have, do you have a back, is he in the, is he in the series Bible? Is does he have a backstory? Is, is he more of a spiritual? Yeah, I
2: think he's in a, I think he's in the Bible. You know, it's interesting. So we came in, the Bible only went through season one. So I like, and it was extremely different, like than what ended up being season one. So we came into season two. And that was the thing about season two. So it was, a, uh, it was an entirely new set of writers um so Graham and Michael got their show they had to leave um Ray called me asked me to come work on the show he brought in some other writers and we had this new set of writers with one holdover which is Kate Powers who is the writer's assistant and who became a a writer on the show um but we had this whole new group and we also had a whole a, a blank page basically because what Ray had pitched in season one was basically the show was the Bible was all everything he wanted it to be. He thought it was going to be one season or he was like, I know this can be one season and it'll be complete and that's it. And so when season two came around, we just had an open book and Wendell had already been established, of course. And um, I don't know if he ever had any aspirations beyond what he was. I don't think there was ever a story beyond Wendell is just And we had to figure out that becomes over time and you can only do so much. Wendell, the power of Wendell, I think, really is in this initial first half of the series, really. And that's, um, you know, as the echo of his confinement, um, you know, remains and reverberates in Daniel's head, uh, Wendell is a loud voice there. And you do see this terrible time when Kerwin was gone and it's just Wendell there. Um, uh, and eventually that becomes sort of a less of a, of a thing in the show. Um, but he's, yeah, I mean, I think you're it's really was the angel and the devil set up was sort of a brilliant stroke, um, on Ray's part just to set that up like that and then to take away the good, um, yeah. because I feel like the bad is probably, um, the more, uh, uh common scenario i I, I, would, I would have to think that you would find in terms of like what that place does to you i mean like not that they're bad people but that what a place with solitary confinement death row what it does to people um is not it, there's there's very little good that comes out of of being confined on that in that place you know and um and it would the, be uh, hard to uh see
0: just a guy sitting in solitary confinement, like right. yeah. to have this tormentor on yeah. the other side of the, of the air duct is brut- yeah. just so brutal because it really does personify the evil of that whole system. I
2: think, Yeah. And that guy's- yeah. And we do some stuff and I would just go off and write when I would write window scenes. So basically when we shot the show, um, because I was also a director, I came down to Georgia. So it was basically, we wrote the show here in LA and then we went to Georgia to shoot and Ray and I went to Georgia and we were on set and we were just writing. We were finishing the scripts and getting them in and rewriting them and stuff as they came in. And, and, and I was just there to sort of write, 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 write. Basically I'll just write stuff to give to Ray to rewrite, you know, and we would just work on this, these scenes together. And, and, um, Cause we were wo- woefully behind due to the nature of TV scheduling. And we were just, I was just writing all night, every night, just trying to get these scripts done and uh, throughout all of season two. And um, but the nights when I was writing stuff for Wendell uh, were s- some of the darker nights and I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd get through, I'd get, I know it's good too. Cause you could like purge a lot of your dark st- stuff and you would just, I would just kind of go off and, and write. And I had this, I was living in the, like at the Atlanta motor speedway in these condos that looked out over the racetrack. It was the weirdest experience. And I was alone in this big condo and um, over a racetrack writing these terrible, terrible scenes. And um, you know, my family was across the country. It was weird. It was a weird time, but it was, it it was really memorable in a lot of ways. And but windows certainly, tapped into something and in all of us as we wrote him that was that was um that was that was different
0: that's awesome to hear behind the scenes a little bit for that character that's the character who last last night my wife's tried to watch a couple times with me and she's like nope i'm out yeah <laughs> you know whatever he starts masturbating or he starts oh yeah
2: and- that's tough that ain't easy yeah
1: can i can we go from darkness to light Probably. and And what is it like to be given a character like Tawny?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Tawny is, again, it's that beauty of um, embracing the complexity uh, of human nature and and not painting anyone as one color. Uh, uh, I know that what I responded to certainly in the first season was that um, that first of all that Ray um, just who you know who so here's here's what let me step back a second so the the beauty of why I think this she works as a character and why anything that has to do with faith works on that show there's a real to me in my mind besides Ray's openness to it um and his belief system is not a traditional christian belief system evangelical whatever it's like not but he is openness to the beauty of the world and knowing from his from where he grew up and knowing just the world we live in that there are plenty of people who are fine folks who have faith and plenty that aren't who have faith and um and his openness to painting someone as a real human being is the core of all of these characters. And, um, but the reason that she works as a character of faith, I think moving beyond season one, where beyond season one, we begin to see a much more complex sort of deconstruction happen in Tony's life. And um, because she's, she's got this beautiful, true faith that is also uh naive um she is a very young person i think she's like 24 in the show or 25 and her faith is relatively young it's true and it's real but it hasn't been tested and um that's the beauty of it that's why daniel was drawn to it um and her sincere desire to help him is what is is a is a he, she's the one thing he can hold on to in that first season of goodness no someone who doesn't want anything from him um and but because she's young and she's inexperienced and, and a little bit sheltered um you know she doesn't guard her own feelings and that in, in that scenario and that complicates things greatly, obviously, right? And that's the beauty of it. It's the it's reality. It's real life. She wants to do good. She wants to help this guy. And she's also a human being, flesh and blood, who feels things, you know, and has a has a relationship with her husband that isn't the best right now. And I just, and but it would be again one of those things would be so easy to paint. Teddy is this bad guy, but he's not. And he's got his problems, but he's also, and that makes it complex. And when you really begin to see Tawny having to start to deal with all this, I think in 202 we begin to see that really the beginning of her journey, which is going to be how now how do I reconcile all this stuff? This I have feelings for somebody. Are they real feelings? Was it just my desire to help him. What does that even mean? Do I, What do I think? He's opened my mind to these new ideas. Are they real? And this life group scene in 202 mm-hmm. primarily <clears throat> is a place where that you begin to see the seeds of that. And you even see like the misunderstanding of her friends who, who only see what she's doing to help and they have no idea what she's really feeling inside. And but Teddy does, you know, and he senses it and feels it and she has to deal with that. And then she's honest with him and um, and tells the truth, which that was a a really complicated scene to write and argued about more than any other scene I've ever been involved in. Probably argued about in the writer's room, really about what's yeah. the right thing to do. Um, would she do that? Well, it she felt s- like, yeah.
1: It felt like it it landed for me. I mean, I I was going to say that those two scenes in the tire shop and then at home. Yeah. What a, I got to say, what a perfect fight. What Mm -hmm. a perfect argument. I mean, you can go so many directions. Does Teddy blow up? I mean, I'm sure these are all the conversations that you had are similar, Mm -hmm. but it just felt like this is what Teddy would do. I mean, all of these kind of, you know, thinly veiled accusations and attacks mm-hmm. and suspicions, mm-hmm. and she just stays steady mm-hmm. and it I just found it extremely effective,
2: yeah, thanks. I and mean, she's she's and that's Adelaide Clemens, and that's Clayne Crawford for sure. Yeah, absolutely you know, and it's and Denny Gordon, who directed the show. Um, you know, and it was hard too. It was the first time it was the first time because it was TV um uh, first time I'd written something and was not directing it but i was there right behind poor denny gordon like i was right behind her and um you know wishing i was directing the show and so that was not easy on anyone and it was hard and we learned a lot but it's sort of um that's sort of the weird thing about about doing this but it it was uh but denny did a great job and 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 Ray, who basically co-directed every episode, I mean, when you see the the show is Ray's, it is the auteur in the in as much a sense as I can imagine anything being. There were several people's names who were directed, who directed the show, um, myself included. But Ray was right there beside us every time, every take, and which the DGA had problems with but uh (laughs) but uh but we just said when they would come we would say look this is a deal uh raised there it's his baby he knows how this goes um are you okay with that and directors would say yeah I'm okay with that or no I'm not okay with that and some would say yeah I'm okay with that and they got there and realized they weren't okay with that um you know it wasn't always easy uh but um, but those who embraced it made some great, great work. And, uh, just, all I was going to say though, is, as part of what makes Tawny great. Um, is that, and I think w- one reason Ray asked me to come work on the show is he knows that I, I come from that world. I, I, you know, I come from an evangelical background. I know those people in that the, the language I know the, and I'm a person of faith myself. So I think he wanted that voice in the show. And, um, but the reason it works is because our writer's room on that second season and, and the second, third, fourth season consisted of, you know, a, a Protestant, my non-denominational Protestant, Let's say, let's say a lapsed Catholic, a non-practicing Jew, a secular humanist and a stone-cold atheist those are the basically the five of us who are writing that show um and what you get there is you get a lot of balance and you get um a lot of people's respecting other people's opinions you get iron sharpening iron and you get no propaganda you know only real truthful human reactions come through um that gauntlet of belief you know and uh and that's really the beauty of it. I think why Tawny come ultimately is seasons two through four, uh, I think has a great story and a great arc and and becomes a real flesh and blood person.
1: Scott, I don't know that we'll hear a better description of why this show works than what you just gave, because you were walking into my next question, which was, could you talk about the writer's room? Because yeah. it felt like uh, this show feels sacred and yeah. there's something, and you talked about it. It was funny. Uh, Johnny Ray Gill yesterday said, I'll never do anything or read anything better than rectify. The first thing you said when you came on, it's one of the most proud is yeah. one of the most proudest you've ever been about anything you've done. And I was just going to ask you about what that writer's room must have felt like to be involved in something like this. And you already started to paint that picture of the beauty, the beauty, beauty of diversity there and the yeah. the what that adds to characters like this. And yeah, it, 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 was, it had to have been an amazing thing.
2: It was great. So season two, like I said, all new writers, and uh, there were five new writers in season two, and then three of us basically stayed on for seasons three and four. So there's a core of us, which which was Ray, and then myself, Coleman Herbert, and Kate Powers. And the four of us sort of were from two through four. In season two, also Chad Fian and Victoria Morrow were part of the show in season two. But then in three and four, we sort of whittled it down to the four of us who wrote the show. And we just became a family. It was beautiful. We trusted each other. We argued. You know, Ray is um, uh, in many ways like he's he's uh, a men- my mentor. He's my big brother. He's uh my best friend and my mortal enemy, depending on the day, you know, it's like, we all have this, like, (laughs) we have this, you know, we had this, we, 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 because we trust each other and we love each other. And because we love the show more than anything, we all fight for our opinions and I probably fight more than others, but, um, we fight for what we think is right, you know? And, 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 I, I it all comes from a place of love and it comes from a place of wanting the best for the show and believing in the show so much believing in this thing he wrote ultimately it's his baby but i'm going to say man i think we should do this i think this character would do that i i really think believe in this idea um you know most writers rooms we you know you've i've been in other ones and and you know you're just talking about what happens next, what happens next. Let's build out this scene, this episode, scene by scene, write it on the boards, block it out, plot it out. And in Rectify, we would sit around and spend four hours talking about what it must be like to not know your parents. You know, Tony's adopted. And uh, so we'd talk about that for six hours and we'd eat lunch and then we would go home. It's like we had these philosophical conversations. We would go deep, you know, writer's room is a very personal place where you, you know, you, you share a lot of your, your life with people. And, um, you know, and, and when we finished the show, Coleman Herbert said that similar to what Johnny Ray said, it sounds like Coleman said, I'll never work on a better show than this. And I was like, well, that's, at the time i was like that seems like a that's a you know that's a, that's not a very optimistic outlook about what you're going to work on and here we are four years later and i think he's probably right for myself too you know and just wow. see because it wasn't just the show which it was the show but it's also the experience of making the show i have nothing but fond memories there were hard times and all of that and ray and i would fight you know and and we want our best and uh but it was, um, it was all for a great cause, you know, and, and uh, there's this great story Absolutely. about that, about that life group scene. Uh, and, and that was one of the things I could bring to this is this idea. So I, I was like, I was like, so what if she was in a life group one day in the writer's room to which the response was a sea of blank faces and what? Uh, and what's a life what's group? What's life I group. Go, All right. So, and I go, oh, well, it's like, um, you know, you like get together and, you know, like at home, it's like a, it's like a book club, but you're talking about spiritual things and you're praying and you're having a glass of wine. And they're like, wait a second, you're having a glass of wine and you're praying. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, uh, like Jesus did. I don't know. So, uh, you know, so, but the idea was just so foreign to everyone. And that was beautiful. So I wrote this scene. I pitched the scene. They liked it. I wrote the thing, um, which is by far the most sort of overtly Christian thing I'd ever written in anything. Um, but, the, but the context allowed for it, you know, and called for yeah,
1: it. Yeah, but with an, eye, but with an um, eye to that confession from that woman.
2: Which is a, wrong. A surprise, which is like, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the beautiful thing about it. Which I think the irony, if it works, it's because it's like the irony is like she doesn't, she misses the, she gets the whole thing wrong. She doesn't know what's, I mean, she, it's not wrong, but it's also, she doesn't understand what's happening in Tawny, like what that meant for Tawny. But right, anyway, so right. I write the scene. I come, I get notes on this, I give this script to everybody. They give me notes. I give it back. I'm, I'm writing the rewrite of the scene, of, this, of the episode. And I was like, you know what, this life group scene—it's sort of extraneous. It Doesn't—it's not really necessary. I think this—I think the, the episode's too long. And so I cut the scene out of the next draft. And then we I give it out to all the writers. We give notes on each other's scripts. You know, I give it all around, and then come back the next day, and they're like, hey, "Where's the life group scene?" And I go, oh, "I don't know. You know, it's always sort of not." necessary could sort of move on past it. And they go, no, 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 no. We, we, we like that. And I was like, why do you like it? And, and, uh, I think it was Kate. She's like, uh, I've just never seen it before. And, uh, that was interesting. You know, I thought, Oh, that's cool. Like this is an idea that we can introduce to the world. It seems like a pretty new idea, not a new idea where I come from, but a new idea perhaps to the larger community. And so we put it in, it's a nice little scene. And, um, you know, it, it builds out Tony's world a little bit. And, and also, you know, it's like speaking some truth and, but also, but in a way that's ironic and, and, and I don't know, I, I think, you know, I still think it's a little, I don't know. I, I like it a lot. Um It can be better written maybe, but I, I but I don't want to critique it. It's like, I, I love it. I, you know, like I always critique my own work. I'm always like, you know i wish it was better everything was better but I, i'm so grateful that you have this editor in ray mckinnon who comes back and makes everything better and um and that's the real gift of of having a genius running your show
1: the, the scott i mean the it, it's it is a brilliant show and we've enjoyed every episode so far and um it's wonderful to have your voice to have had your voice in that show to have you here and yeah. I know that we talked a little bit via email. That you know, there's some other episodes you've been involved with. Obviously, um, hope to have you back. Um, for Yeah, let's come back. it would be fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really yeah. dig into it because this has been fantastic.
0: come on, come on back and with, and we, we yeah we would love to have you back on to talk
2: about it, yeah it's um I was funny I was talking to my wife today I was after I watched after I was kind of scanned through 201 and 202 just to kind of jog my memory and. I was just like thinking, you know, I said, this is so it was very nostalgic for me this morning to do that. And uh, in the best way possible, the show is so it has such deeply felt sentiment, but it's not sentimental, you know, and that's the beauty of the show. It's like I look at a scene like that Daniel Kerwin scene in the end of 201 and I'm like, how did that even work? How does that scene work? It's not possible there are a thousand ways that scene goes bad and becomes just hokey and sentimental and cheesy. And it doesn't because you have great actors, you have a great writer, you have a great director, you know, it's like that scene just works. And there's so many times we push the line on emotion in this show, but Ray feels it so deeply that it's always going to be authentic. And I was sometimes flabbergasted by like, What we would do and how emotional the show would get and gets going forward, but um, but yeah, I directed a couple episodes too. I'd love to talk about that, and we'll figure it out. This is fun. I'm enjoying like the trip down memory lane, and and uh, (laughs) and be happy to get you guys see that up with some other folks too. So, yeah,
1: Um, we would would love that. And and Scott, again, thanks so much for joining us, and just everybody out there, thanks for listening. Check out Rectify. All the episodes on Netflix. If you haven't been convinced by now, I don't know what it would take. Other company <laughs> coming to your house and yelling at you,
2: and
1: <laughs> turning it on, and be sure to like and subscribe and all that great stuff. And we look forward to talking uh, with Scott again in the future and discussing episode two hundred three next week.
0: Awesome! Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, everybody.